This is a HIFIA podcast, an investigation into the bright and sustainable future from the perspective of doers, makers and thinkers. I'm your host Iggy and today we have with us expert in research, sustainability, corporations, methodology, networking and systems, head of impact research and evaluation at ImpactVest, affiliated researcher at Stockholm University, lecturer, analyst dedicated to bridging the corporate academic practitioner knowledge gaps regarding the implementation of sustainability practices, currently living in Germany, Susan Jackson. Hello, Susan. Hi, Iggy. Thanks for inviting me to be here today. How's your day so far? Um, my day is okay. We're, you know, at home like a lot of the world, if we can be. And yeah, it's Friday and I'm looking forward to some light research on the weekend instead of heavy duty stuff. So it's good. Okay. And you? I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. I just got a new light on my setup. So I'm, you know, pretty well lit at this point. Everything's blinding me. But listen, <laughs> listen, big question to start with. Okay. How do we transition to civilization that lives in balance with nature within the next 10 years? Um, well, I think there are probably several things that we could do um, that we should be doing. Um, some are on the everyday level and in individual lives we can do in our households. Um, some of them are encouraging our policymakers to um, be better at tracking and doing regulations and the things that we need to encourage corporations, which is the third component to um, actually live up to the goals that we've set, um, like the sustainable development goals with the UN in 2015, different things that are going on at the EU level here, um, where we are in Poland and Germany. Um, and yeah, so first with households, I think really just figuring out how you're consuming and where those things are coming from, how they impact people in the planet. Um, and telling the corporations that you're buying from why you're buying from them and those that you're not, why not? Um, corporations, are, we have all sorts of things in place that, that they can already be doing. So if any of them are listening, they should, I think, be working on their business models to build sustainability into their economic activities. And back to uh, policymakers, we've got all sorts of ways that we can encourage, incentivize corporations and people to be doing things um, to reach the goals that we've set. All right. Um, that was pretty concise. <laughs> I thought you were going to go on a banter over here and just, you know, start like <laughs> listing different industries and just be like, yeah, we have to do this in energy, that in food and, you know, do that with waste. Is well, if I could, I think each of the, the the things that we need to be doing in each of those, those different industries are context dependent for the industry and for the location. Mm -hmm. So whether you're in an industrialized urban environment or if you're in a rural setting might change how you approach mm -hmm. some of the different uh, sectors or industries that you just listed. Um, Households are probably going to approach things in a bit different way than corporations are going to approach them because we have different contexts that we're working in. So specifics depend on the people and the part of the planet that are involved in what we're trying to accomplish. Mm -hmm. You've mentioned corporations, uh, their role in a transition. Do you see that role uh, as equal as governmental role or Corporations kind of got us into a place, oil corporations, for example. Do you, yeah. do, you do you feel like they should be responsible for equal part of like solutions or what, what's your stance? Um, well, I think in some ways, all the things, all the actors that I've listed are equal in that we all have to be doing something. Um, I think with corporations, one of the differences is that in the capitalist system we have set up now, the global political economy, how the world functions, and we've, we've left a lot up to corporations to self-regulate, and we can see that that doesn't necessarily work. Yeah. I mean, you know, now we talk a lot about energy, but we can see big patterns in how corporations work, for instance, with the tobacco industry, right? And that self-regulation, you know, using science to 
um, back up the idea that tobacco doesn't really harm people health-wise, even though they knew it did, and even though we now know it does, right? So we know this also with the um, energy industry, that knowing the contribution that fossil fuels make to the climate crisis, that's been known for a very long time within the industry, but not necessarily known so well by consumers. And so, you know, companies really, I don't think, should be regulating themselves. But at the same time, they move faster than the government can, than policymakers can. So there are ways that we can encourage industries to move faster towards sustainability goals, for instance, cutting greenhouse gas emissions, um, replacing fossil fuels with other kinds of energy, um, wind, solar, things like that. We can encourage corporations to move faster to do some of these things on their own while government is working on regulations that actually make sense, right? If you move too fast with regulations, you might not see what the trade-offs are Right, not everything might end up being a benefit, um, and and it gives time for I think the regulators to see how things work, to look at the science, and know how policies are going to impact people and the planet. But corporations can already be moving; they don't need to wait for the um, governments to, you know, put in penalties if they don't comply. Type of regulations. What do you think about geoengineering? At, um, that's a really broad question. Can you be a little more specific? Absolutely. Um, this is the idea of uh, using technology to give us a little bit more time. I was, uh, I'm was i actually thinking about one particular video I've been watching yesterday. Kurz gesagt uh, created a video about geoengineering and in a very simple way they explain and kind of show the risk of uh, companies using geoengineering, for example, pumping sulfur, di sulfur dioxide, no, sulfur dioxide, sulfur, one of those gases into the atmosphere in order to cool down the earth. Uh, yeah. And the risk here is that once we start allowing corporations to do things like that, they're going to keep doing that and, you know, keep pushing the entire earth, the, all the ecosystems into a direction of uh, apocalypse with the only reason being profit. So my question is, do you like, yeah, do you, do, do you even think about geoengineering as a viable option at some point, such as changing manually? Well, I mean, we do actually have that kind of experiment going on right now with carbon dioxide, yeah. right? But yeah. Yeah, I, I think that technology in general has a, it offers a lot of opportunity, right? There's a lot of really interesting research being done, systems, technologies that are being implemented that can be very, very helpful. Um, I would be a bit hesitant to try changing the actual climate in ways that we already know we have problems. So adding to, we don't know if we're gonna add to that by, you know, trying to to manually, I guess, cool down um, uh, uh, the, the climate change crisis. I think there are other technologies, especially in the short term, that could be quite useful um, in helping to mitigate the climate crisis, right? Because there are, there's mitigation and there's adaptation, right? So adaptation is, when we um, change things so that we can deal with what's actually going on, because we know that the globe, it's, we're still gonna have global warming, right? We're still gonna have climate change, but if we don't mitigate it, which means to interfere and to try and make things less dangerous, um, then we're really gonna have a lot of problems. So technology, I think, can help us in some ways to adapt, right? We can build different kinds of housing because we know it's going to be warming up. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Right? right. So housing that has, for instance, a lot of green built into it, right? So um, green roofing that helps to deal with increases in rain in some places and it's planted and it helps to cool down the insides in different ways. Um, there are different air filtration, natural air filtration systems that we can use say in places um, that are that are really uh, very hot and very dry. Certain parts of, of Africa, you get 
actually women leading the forefront on building new housing structures with natural ventilation systems, right? So that you cut down on the amount of kind of artificial technology that you need and you're using more of the natural systems and human-made uh, technologies. Um, let, let me, there let, are, let me interrupt yeah. you just for a second because I this is a this is a theme that's been ongoing in a few podcasts I already had where we talk about technology solutions like very technical solutions combined with nat natural solutions. Can you mm -hmm. just elaborate a little bit more on that? Because I'm the the thing that I'm most curious about is how do we spread that kind of thinking further? Is this via education? Because this is very unique to every single place on the planet. There's different yeah. ways to deal with stuff, but at the same time, we kind of have to, you know, put it in the one box in a way to really understand that the, the, the impact that we are having with this right. kind of approach works or not. Right. I mean, it works apparently, but yeah, is this, I is, yeah go ahead, please. Well, I just I think there 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 are two things. One is the kind of very very what we tend to think of technology. For instance, uh, AI, right, artificial intelligence, and and the other I think is looking at um, more um, like I guess locally produced types of technology that come out of the of local ecosystems, right? So artificial intelligence can help us with. Um, bringing together a lot of information and being able to process new ways of dealing with that information. And that can be really useful for intelligence, intelligent construction, for instance, um, different kinds of systems that we're building in um, and getting feedback from those and being able to then learn from the feedback that we're getting, right, through using machine learning and artificial intelligence. Um, other things have to do with how for a long time we've assumed that um, a lot of different local communities don't have the same kind of knowledge that we've promoted as science. And so they're often excluded from conversations of how to deal with local environments. So we get kind of this top down, we bring the technology to you and we make your lives better. Whereas a lot of local communities have ideas on how to deal with the problems that they have, they just might need more resources, right? If there are more communities, for instance. And so I think if we can, on the one hand, encourage um, local development in these kinds of technology ways of dealing with things like air filtration or ventilation and, and water supplies and those kinds of things, if we can encourage that and provide the resources for local communities to be able to build their own responses at the same time that we're using and leveraging the very advanced technologies that we have without assuming that those technologies will automatically find an answer for us, mm -hmm. right? That is, there's still a human interaction to be, you know, a part of all of that and a social input to how these technologies work. Not just the technologies are really cool, we should use them, but what is the social implication of using a particular technology? I think we need to combine those two approaches. Mm -hmm. Kind of leads me to a question about carbon removal technologies, because it seems like a, a lot of people on the planet, and I know we've talked about it already, a yeah. lot of people on the planet bet hard on car direct carbon capture to be this magical pill, this thing that's going to solve all, all our problems, mm -hmm. which is not true, because even if we use direct carbon capture, it's just one of the many solutions that we can we need to implement, right? Yeah, I think I mean carbon capture is a fairly new subject area for me. Um, what I understand so far is it can be very useful in what I would call the near term, right? So not necessarily just the next year or two, but you know over a period of time to remove CO2 from the atmosphere, from the around us, and to use it for other products, to not just, you know, maybe dump it into far down into the ground, um, which was the standard, but, you know, now we see construction materials, right? We know mm -hmm. cement production is, is a very dirty um, process. Oh, yeah. And so- cement, right? Like the, the one that's yeah. like the mostly used. Yeah, I mean, in cement in general, it's, it's, it's really quite polluting. Um, 
So carbon capture could be a way of mitigating that pollution by bringing the CO2 into building materials. One of the concerns I think over the long term is what happens when those products start to break down as everything does at some point, you know, do we have a circular economy kind of approach where we already know we can then take those materials and bring them back and use them into something else, right? Make them into something else. Or is it a situation where we're just going to have to end up discarding them at some point, right? So the design part of the whole process of carbon capture and what you do with it is actually quite important. Mm -hmm. um, over the longer term, I think carbon capture is not the only solution because we can't keep producing the same amount of carbon we have, or, you know, the CO2 that we're producing now and expects that, you know, carbon capture is just going to be the miracle cure-all and remove mm -hmm. everything and we can just go on living in the type of economy we've been living in. I think that's, a, I think that's the big, I think that's the big change that really is, um, this is a nightmare for a lot of uh, companies, governments, like because we do need to change. And this change is, has to be a behavioral change. We have to change the way people live. Yeah. And that's, we're talking habits, right? We're talking about like the way people have been living for a, a long time. Right. It's not just how like to change a habit. We already know, like if you, I mean, bringing up tobacco again, like to quit smoking, you have to change your mindset. Mm -hmm. Right. Like it's, habits are hard to break it, yeah. it, it requires you to think in a different way about what your behavior is how do you how do you deal with bad habits do you have a do you have a do you have a technique like um well on a household level for instance um you know we try even with the with the kids right so they've grown up in this household they're they're teenagers now and they've grown up in a household where we before them we were trying to already talk about sustainability but before sustainability became the the buzzword um so one of the things we do is we kind of take a, a review right if we want to add something new to uh you know our consumption we think about you know do we need it what happens when we're done like if we want to buy a new product you know what what does it mean for the people who are producing it where is it coming from because there are social um, implications in the economy as well so I, my one recommendation I give to people when they ask me this is, you know, look at your household consumption and see what's something you could eliminate. Mm -hmm. Start with something easy, because if you start with something really hard, we know then like most of the time you don't get past that, right? New Year's resolutions. Yeah, yeah, New Year's resolutions should be kind of, you know, not this like by February, this is gonna happen, but like by the end of this coming year, I would like to have seen this transformation, right? And then you take it in steps. So households, you can you can do that. Um, if people aren't following what their policymakers are doing, they can pick one activity they think is important. They don't have to follow everything that's going on in all over the world, but pick one area that they find they're really engaged with and interested in learning more about and slowly learn more and then reach out to their policymakers and ask them, how green is this? Mm -hmm. How is this impacting people who are producing this? Where on the supply chain might there be problems, you know, along the way with, you know, labor issues, right? Small questions that might make the policymakers think, and that can be, that builds into a real interest and a grounded education mm -hmm. of information for, for the consumer. So then they can start talking about it. Right. So there are little things that people can do that are already very empowering that if enough of us do them, it actually could tip the scales in a positive way. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's how I, that's how I get very uh, hopeful and optimistic about the future is whenever I hear about the startup company that it they don't necessarily produce entirely new technology, but they kind of solve one of those small problems that we have in the house. And I keep I keep reiterating one company that I heard about recently with companies basically uh, making shower, like the water that you have in a shower hot from the very first second. Like there's sometimes a moment when you're standing in the shower and the water just goes and you're waiting for it to heat up. And right. I, I heard about it like a few days ago and I have, I, I'm in no way affiliated with that company, but I've told about this company like so many people <laughs> just because yeah, yeah. I think it's a brilliant thing. It's a brilliant idea. That's exactly what we need to, 
be on the lookout for those small tweaks and fixes, uh, both on a granular level, but also on a you know major you know top of like bird's perspective level. Uh, yeah, yeah, and that's the thing with like if you pick something that you're really interested in and you follow through on that. It, it can actually, you don't have to start with just like, oh, what shampoo am I using type of thing. You can start with something big. You know, you might say, oh, I was actually, you know, watching what they were saying about climate policy in the European Union, and I'm really concerned about this particular area of it. Then you can, you know, look into what that is and just start talking with your policymakers, get more information. Right? That's what their offices are there for. They have staff because they're supposed to inform the public of what they're doing. I think, right? that's a, I, I, I think you touched on a very important part, which is a lot of young people don't necessarily know uh, how to talk with policymakers because they kind of are stigmatized. Right? Yeah. Like when you, whenever I think about policy and like policymakers, especially in Poland recently, it's just a, it's just a, it's a, it's a, it is a hard topic because there is yeah. literally almost nobody that I can vouch for in here. And, you know, not even looking at the state of the world, there had been US election and uh, recently. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm very well aware of that. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, yeah. yeah, like there are young people and I'm, I'm really young uh, when it comes to I'm, you know, I'm young and stupid, and I don't know it, it's impossible oh, to to change the world. So I'm trying think, to do it. <laughs> right, and I think part of, part of that is it's not um, right. It's it's uh, not stupid. It's it's uninformed. Right, there's yeah. always a possibility to be informed. So mm -hmm. you have an opportunity, and you, and you're doing it. I think it's great. Um, the, the thing that I'm, you know, quite interested about is just following up on this young conversation, if I'm uninformed, the way I process information right now as a young person, and not me specifically, but kind of also too, is for example, via memes, right? You know, the yeah, concept yeah. of a meme. So the question is, how do we turn climate conversation uh, into a meme conversation? Yeah, no. which, that's actually really interesting because my my side project, which is is it's actually studying uh, memes with a researcher in the U.S. We have this whole meme project and trying to figure out. Please um, do tell. That sounds when, awesome. When, we don't know yet, but like, when does some when does a meme cross from like just something that's supposed to be, you know, funny to something that wants to be informative to something that's actually extreme and pushing in the other direction like it's it's a it's an interesting process so i will get back to you whenever we have something more definitive that we're working on but something that i'm really interested in in this project i think would be you know the climate deniers mm -hmm. right like oh, how wow, are yeah. they how are they communicating through memes right and then maybe you could counter that like you find some climate denying memes and then see how is it what kind of meme could you do that would kind of turn that me the climate denying meme on its head oh, yeah. right i don't know it's just something i've been yeah. thinking about actually the last week or two so that's really funny you brought it up one of the things that i wanted to put out there in in response and um i went through a training program earlier this year the end of august beginning of september called climate reality and it's a nonprofit organization it was started by former vice president al gore mm -hmm. as Part of the climate, like his movie in the 90s about the climate crisis and, you know, the work he's been doing since then. But it's a global organization. And the point of all of this is there, there are a lot of resources on that website that young, it's, it's a lot about young people. It's a lot about helping young people learn if you want to reach out to policymakers, how to go ahead and do that. It's information that you would need all in one space to be able to reach out and say, here are the points about climate, the climate crisis I want you to address, right? So, it, I mean, there are a lot of resources like that that are online that if, you know, people who are listening aren't really sure where to go, you know, if you start doing searches on, you know, youth movement, climate crisis, mm -hmm. right, you'll start to get a lot of, um, organizations around the world that are starting up young people starting organizations about this particular issue mm -hmm. 
uh, especially following you know the the media coverage of Greta Thunberg from Sweden, mm-hmm. right? So there there's a lot going on, and I found it really encouraging to see how many young people are starting nonprofit groups in their own communities to deal with a particular issue. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, we think of NGOs or nonprofit groups of having to be these like thousands of people with lots of funding. And it, it's actually, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's work, mm-hmm. but it's something everyone can do, right? You know, educate yourself on an issue and, and you can do that. Yeah, exactly. Like you're just, you, you do not agree with the state of the world right now. And as a young person, you have enough energy to uh, aim high and be ambitious about it. I, when, yeah. you, when you start to say about climate reality, I was curious, maybe there's a room to take that kind of information and start, you know, translating that into a more visual medium, because uh, I'm on a constant lookout for all the stuff that could be really uh, made sexy in a way, you know, made made yeah. relevant to, to younger audience, to people who are like 16 right now, who, you know, when you're 16 and you have this array of games around you and tech that kind of like sucks you into the chair in front of the screen and, and gives you yeah. I don't I don't know if you if you've ever played games or recently played games I've always been like on the like on the edge sometimes I would find a game and I would get into it but like a lot of people you know just just play play their life right now and uh, we have a serious situation on the planet yeah that is yeah there's there's a growing um, interest in reaching out to young people and especially younger people, right? The, the teenagers um, who, you know, digital natives, right? I mean, you have so much uh, at your fingertips, whether it's learning in new ways through gamification of different types of different topics, um, definitely available, things that are available on the internet, ways of communicating that are fast, that you know weren't available for people in my my generation. Um, I think games are definitely a way, especially with um, I think reaching uh, the K through 12, right? The the young the the kids that are still in like middle school and high school. Mm-hmm. Um, they're the ones that are you know they're on Instagram, TikTok, and all sorts of things that I don't even know uh, anymore. Like, you know, what, what my kids are doing, they've reached, you know, the age where they can check the box that they're old enough to use these different things. So, um, yeah. you know, I try to monitor, but it, it doesn't work. Um, yeah, I think it's absolutely the visual is, is the main way we communicate mm-hmm. in, in industrializing people who are, are online. Like it's, it was always a key way, visual communication, but visualization now through you know taking statistics and making them really cool and they can move and like it's such a different way than like a bar chart mm-hmm. do, you right? think, do you think do you think particular statistics are the thing to to be you know used as a source for all that stuff or any- um i i think i think right now one of the things that is becoming it should become, I should say, more mainstream is is that communication is about storytelling, right? Like we kind of, we think about policymakers are not really telling a story, but actually they are, right? We tend to think of storytelling as entertainment, mm-hmm. but most of our lives we communicate through storytelling because everything that we say and think is connected to something else we already have been exposed to. Right. So that's a big story and we take parts of it and we communicate with each mm-hmm. other through storytelling. And the thing that visuals do, whether it's, you know, different kinds of heat maps or the types of things that you produce, you know, in your company, all sorts of different kinds of visuals are really key to how we tell stories in the 21st century. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very important. And you know, for me as a researcher, I think going back to the science and going back to the statistics is, is important and the stories that we tell around them. So I would recommend if you're reaching um, out to the younger group, the stories that you tell, the visuals that you produce, I think should be based on you know, science and statistics and the things that we have at 
at hand that we know, mm-hmm. but you don't have to make it really boring and dry, right? Like maybe just the game is kind of, you know, couched in these climate crisis reality statistical bases, but you don't have to do that necessarily through a heat map, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Like y- your story can be a game, but it might be based in the actual reality. Do, do you see that as a, as a potential viable option? I mean, the VR is on the rise right now. And this is one of the technologies that I absolutely love. VR, virtual reality, augmented reality. Mm-hmm. I think this is also a new frontier, new medium to tell stories like these, where we are actually talking about reality. But I mean, the question that I would ask myself is, what what would be the goal of of it? Is it awareness? Do we want to make people aware that there's something Um, else going on? Because usually the information that we get is very negative. Like that's that's the general like majority yeah. of information that is out there about climate change and whenever somebody is like very serious about climate change it's always like you always leave that person with rolling eyes because how how much information can you process before you, your brain just shuts down and like i want to watch right. cute dogs you know on the youtube i don't want to care about like stuff <laughs> i prefer the kittens but you know yeah to each, to each their own right no i'm kidding so well, i really do prefer the cats but i think um the the video right the way that that we met was um a video that you produced on um an island that you visited and the idea of like solutions right and finding solutions and not just always doom and gloom and I think one of the things with with visuals or if it is virtual reality right being able to bring people who would never get to that island to meet the people who are creating their own solutions and that goes back to what I meant about bringing in you know different kinds of knowledge different um, different kinds of people you need a broad stakeholder discussion right and not just like the people who have the resources to just make things happen um, but I think with visuals you can you can bring someone somewhere that they otherwise couldn't be mm-hmm. right and I'm, I'm a book reader right I really I, I love the written word and I think it's really important to bringing people to other places but I think in this case you know the the visual of someone going through something that's related to the climate crisis and then being able to provide the viewer with you know a solution as well like that can actually be quite positive. It brings someone there so that they're more empathetic, right? You're more likely to under, you know, be empathized with someone's situation if you understand them a little better. Yeah. Right. So there's those barriers of distance that that I think visuals can overcome mm-hmm. for the younger generation. So, you know, gaming could be an interesting way of doing that, right? By not producing games where you know, it's only white people with guns, with some, you know, enemy terrorists that they're shooting. Like, I mean, have fun with those. But, you know, in my past life, when I was studying these kinds of things, researching these kinds of things, um, you know, there are arguments to be made for expanding the types of games Mm -hmm. that are more mass produced and, and such. I was at a conference and I, on a, listening to a panel, um, on gaming and you know there's there's a whole set of uh game developers in um native american and indigenous communities where the storytelling is different because they're telling it from the story of you know the native american tribe and here are the stories that we want the the children to be playing this game to know about so that's a different kind of story but it's it's a great story and you learn a lot from it Right. So like there are lots of ways that we could do gaming to um, I think build awareness, I think, is a really important aspect. Yeah. That was your original. Same, but, but at the same time, I, I see uh, games as an opportunity to really uh, understand the problem uh, much deeper just because it, it kind of seems simulated by. But if we gamify the climate uh, the problem, the problem, the, you know, the array of problems with climate and we make it into a game and young people just casually compete in winning that game. The, the, 
the thing is like what is this game about like what this and this is kind of like the it is this is the big question that i started with like how do we transition that is it you know do we make a game about how much how many messages can you send in a span of 10 seconds to you know people how to policymakers how you know how do you connect solar panels on, a, on like maybe maybe it's a game you know maybe it's a game where you kind of create some kind of grand theft auto i don't know if you know that game but create a create a I, I sim simulated reality, <laughs> simulated reality where you know you're you are a you know um a designer of solar panels yeah. and you try well, to cover there, as much area as possible yeah there there are games i'm i mean climate crisis related games that i'm i'm not very familiar with but you can search and there are more educational right so there are games that that are supposed to like i don't know like in the science classroom, for instance, something that you could use. So instead of just reading the textbook or watching a movie, you might actually go in and learn the different parts of what's going on with the climate crisis. So there are things that are that do exist. I think there's a lot of room for uh, adding to that or challenging some of what it is that they're they're doing. Um, I don't know how fun they are. I haven't played. I haven't played any of them, um, but there, there, there's definitely a move towards bringing gaming into the discussion and trying to engage younger, the younger crowd. Gotcha. Let me ask you: Are you optimistic about the future? Um, I think it depends on the day. <laughs> yeah, it does. Um, I think in general, I am optimistic if we use the COVID-19 recovery plans to also be about the climate crisis. Mm -hmm. And the climate crisis also means people, right? Like this isn't just, oh, if we just fix, we cut out CO2, then we're done and everything's great. Um, if you look at, for instance, the UN Sustainable Development Goals, which is one of the motivating um, factors for companies. It's it's provide they provide guidelines for what companies can do in order to be more um, environmental and social um, actors. Um, if we integrate something like the UN SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, with um, the business models, with all the money that the EU, uh, China's got all sorts of plans in place with their recovery and they're tying it to green. Mm -hmm. um, the EU's done that. If January 20th in the US looks the way that it's said to look right now, then the incoming administration has a lot of plans to deal with uh, the climate crisis. If we tie COVID-19 recovery and the climate crisis, including the social part all together, and they already are connected, if we pay to make things better all around, I think, yeah, keep the momentum. I think we can, I think we, we, we can turn things around, mm -hmm. but we got to keep moving forward. We can't be like, oh, COVID. So we'll put away the social problems for now. And we won't worry about single use plastic for now. We're just going to deal with this, but the recovery process is going to be years in the making, mm -hmm. right? Once we can claim the pandemic is over, hopefully next year, then we, we should already be building in how everything's connected and paying for things in that way. And that means private money, it means public money, it means consumer behavioral change, it means supporting workers in, you know, Southeast Asia who are making our clothes. Like it's all connected. Wow. Wow, I know. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, I know I, I know I'm gonna have to handle like a lot of that, you know, I'm gonna be at that age, you know, to like for the next ten years, like that's the prime of life for me. You know, that's that's where I have to focus my activities. That's also the reason why I do inter investigation at this point, because I, I wanna know like what people know. Like <laughs> okay, what's the you cannot get this stuff from the textbooks. You I you said you were a fan of uh, of the books and I, I love them too. Don't read them right now as much as I used to, but 
I, I I love the structured way of thinking and such. But the problem with cor like with coronavirus, with climate change, with everything that's going on, like nobody has ever like written anything that's of a substance to it because we we got to this point where this is a problem, uh, and like old ways of doing things they don't work. So we have to really scrap it. You know, take what's best, takes what take what's working. But really understand like the deeper problems there are over here, such as, you know, profit-driven uh, capitalism. I mean, capitalism on its own is a good idea, good thinking. But if the core of it is to make as much money as possible, then how can we put nature into the equation? Like, yeah, if, well. I think the, the way the system is set up now, it's a mindset, right? We chose to set it up like this. It's not, it's not inevitable, um, which is one of the reasons it gives me hope that we can, we can fix things. But with the current system, um, it's, it's unlimited growth, right? You're supposed to, as a company, it's unlimited growth, but with finite resources, mm -hmm. right? We've been working within a system, an ecosystem where we, we can't just, take and take and eventually it's going to run out right it is um there are um there there's a lot of research out there that is still not right in the mainstream but becoming more acceptable um the circular economy for instance is building designing from the beginning to build the end product you know back into the system once it's no longer yeah, yeah yeah right yeah um, but the mindset that goes with that kind of circular economy approach is the donut economy, right? So there's something about how you have, um, you know, it's it's people and the economy and society, and it grows out into the natural environment, right? We are contained by the world that we actually live in. There are limits, right? So if we change our mindset on our relationship with that world, there are ways to implement it. Circular economy is one way to implement that kind of mindset, right? And so then we start to find solutions to do a circular economy, and that's kind of where we're at right now, mm -hmm. right? One of the goals in the in the EU is to get to that building from design, start building everything already back into the next, you know, what's going to happen with it after type of thing. Chile, you know, the country of Chile has its own, has a circular economy plan in place. Wow. Right. So they're, they're already implementing projects to make their economy as a whole, a circular economy. So, I mean, it's possible at the country level and people, oh, it's a small country and this it's, it's possible. It's a mindset. If we want to do it, we can do it. Do you know anybody from Chile? We could put on a podcast and just talk. Too? No, but the the minister in charge of all of this um, spoke at an online conference I was at, at like attended um, online, obviously not at, um, earlier this year. Mm -hmm. There's a possibility maybe someone in her office would oh, want to yeah. talk, um, and it's possible there's there's a group called the Ellen MacArthur Foundation in the UK. They're like the leading or one of the leading um, research places to go to for circular economy, like science-based circular economy research. Mm -hmm. And they, okay. they actually work with different cities and with different organizations on trying to implement, right, to make it a practical solution and not just a theoretical, you know, idea. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I keep so running it. Yeah, I keep I keep running into thinking that you know we we there's a lot of conversation about how much action actually there is, like the the, the climate negotiations have, were happening for past thirty years right now, thirty forty years. Yeah, and this is this is all talk, no action. So well, a lot a lot has changed actually. I mean, it started you know a concerted effort started in the 1970s, mm -hmm. and I mean if you think about the pollution levels in the 1970s that we didn't have the clean air act we didn't have the clean water act we didn't have like the things that we now take for granted in you know places like the eu where this is just how how it's supposed to be it's taken a while but we're now at a point where um there is pressure for um companies to look at their own supply chains to make sure that they're not contributing to damage, but then also the suppliers of their suppliers, the third tier, right? So it, 
it's, it's becoming more and more complex on how we're dealing with things. So yeah, some of it's band-aids, some of it's greenwashing, but there is a lot of stuff that's being done. And I think if we pressure to keep more, mm-hmm. you know, keep going further than, then, you know, yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, I want to, I want to talk to you about the new European Bauhaus. Uh, okay. this, is, this is a fairly new topic. <laughs> Uh, yes. Just just because it, it, it was announced, what was it, a month ago, two months ago? This idea. What are we in December? So it's yeah. pandemic time. Like I sometimes I'm like the whole 2020 is gone. Where did yeah. it go? Right? Exactly. Like it's March. Yes, it's we're March in November. Right <laughs> we're in November now. It feels yeah, it feels like it. But yes, it was just I don't know September, October. Yeah, it's and, very recent. Yeah, yeah, and the the the, the thing is like uh, you've 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 mentioned very interesting point on our conversation about uh, social sciences not being a part of a conversation. Like, can you just briefly go over this? So for everybody who's interested in that, like, okay. Um, And it's another new subject, especially because it's new in general, not just for me, but so the, the new European Bauhaus movement is something that the EU is promoting, um, it's not a done deal yet, but the idea is to use some of the recovery money and other sources um, to fund this bringing together of technology and culture, mm-hmm. to change the mindset and how we design things to make more environmentally and socially friendly um, infrastructure and those kinds of things, starting with, um, I think it's building renovations. Right, because uh, almost half of the you know greenhouse gas emissions and they, things like that come from buildings, whether it's the production of them or the energy that they use after they're built um, and discarding them afterwards. Um, and one of the things that that I had mentioned to you um, in one of the messages is that there's a list of actors that they want to actively promote as part of this. And it's, it's, you know, design, architecture, artists, like bringing all these different um, fields together to rethink how um, we do construction and different things like that in the EU. And one of the things that, you know, there, there isn't really, they say scientists, but often in the broader sense, we usually mean scientists as those who like chemists, you know, or physicists, people who are doing that kind of work and not people like me who do political science, because we're often thought of, oh, we look at government institutions, which is not at all what I actually do. So I was just kind of looking through the documentation to see you know, what kinds of things they were referencing. And it just kept coming back to, you know, and other contributors. Mm-hmm. And I think um, it's, it's one of those, like when we think about the climate crisis, um, it's really important to think of the social aspects, you know, the things that political scientists and sociologists and anthropologists can contribute about understanding how the world works from the people perspective, mm-hmm. right? The climate crisis isn't, you know, devoid of, of people, right? We're, we're causing it by our activities. And so maybe we should understand how our activities, like the mindsets that go into why we chose certain activities and certain kinds of behaviors in order to be able to change those, right? Because mm-hmm. As we talked about earlier, you know, technology isn't going to change things by itself. Yeah. Right. There's a human component to all of that. So I would think if the European, you know, the new European Bauhaus movement is going to be successful, then there needs to be an active participation from the social science and humanities side of of the, you know, intellectual capacity, the research that's been I think it's a, I think it's a valid point. I think you know we are talking about the holistic approach, and I think that's what Bauhaus was supposed to be at the first place. Yeah. Like just this 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 school of thinking where it's not about being specialized initially, but just having the broad picture of everything and behavioral change. This is the start and the end. Like that's how anything starts with a simple change to the habit to the way. You know changing the old ways and then we go for the technolo- technological change and we end up still with behavioral change because the only way we can make changes if we keep doing them so 
I see your point and I think you're absolutely right. Like the social sciences, uh, yeah, I think they may have been underrepresented in this case. But also, yeah. it, you know, the, the whole idea, it, it is it is tricky. I mean, I, I do like the concept of it, the, of the new European Bauhaus, but I'm still like trying to grasp my head, like how to think about it, you know, how to, should we really focus on like building aspect of it, you know, like start, you know, interviewing architects, you know, builders and like ask them, you know, start to connect those people together. I'm just curious. Well, I think I would actually recommend starting with local communities, mm-hmm. right? So um, I don't know. You, you probably know the, the game Minecraft. Oh, yeah. 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 So, you know, my my kids, our kids, my husband, and I, um, the kids were really interested. I mean, they still play it, but they were really into Minecraft like a couple of years ago when they were younger. And we actually went to Minecon one year the wow. one when it was in, <laughs> right? And like we went, it was, it was, it was absolutely amazing. It was one of the most fun times I've ever had. But um, yeah, so they also had their, um, panels on it wasn't just about you know i mean they had all the youtube stars and they had all like they had all these famous people for like if you were a minecraft gamer i don't know um but they also had panels for like research and things right so the un habitat which is one of the main organizations in understanding social and political and economic you know uh, infrastructure right if i if you yeah and so UN Habitat was talking about a program that they ran where they used Minecraft in, they brought together uh, local communities and they trained them, they showed them how to you know, play Minecraft that they didn't know, all ages, all types of people in these communities and said, now construct the village or the town, like what would you do? Uh-huh. If we were going to rebuild a park, like this park over here and make, like, what would you put in it? And so that as a group, people would sit down and they would talk with each other and decide what components would go into this restructure, this, you know, rebuilding this area uh-huh. using Minecraft. And they, they found that, you know, what they were planning to do, the things that they were going to fund, um, they weren't actually the things that people in these communities necessarily needed or wanted. Mm-hmm. But only by doing these kind of Minecraft-centered focus groups did they find these different kinds of ways of going about rebuilding things that the community would need. Fascinating. So, I mean, I think there are a lot, I mean, there you go, there's a game, right? A way of, yeah, exactly. like, it's not a climate crisis game, but it's a game that you can use in order to deal with a lot of the things that are going on in our world. Um, I mean, there, there, yeah, I, I don't think I would start with the architects and say, how would you redo it? I think I would start with a broad stakeholder group, uh-huh. you know, bring in community members and not necessarily like the politicians or the business people, but like, you know, people on the street, you know, like just your regular everyday person, you know, bring them in. Um, with architects, like what what is even possible, right? We might come up with these grand ideas and the architects will be like, you can't actually do that because I don't know, this load bearing wall will collapse and I, yeah. I don't know, all sorts of stuff that, like that. That, I, that is great. Just real quick, I think one, one thing that we've left out of the conversation so far has been investors, mm-hmm. right? Like I think one of one of the things we need to do to make these programs work is to educate the investors Mm -hmm. on making them green and social projects, right? Because the EU is about to, you know, fund this recovery package, you know, once it gets into place, you know, it's, it's hundreds of billions of euros. And a lot of that is to support private sector initiatives to, to expand on the funding, like green bonds. So if the investors who are going to be doing this don't have the knowledge that they need, they might not be investing in ways that actually get us to the goals that we're seeking to reach. This is absolutely crucial uh, conversation that we should have, but also a direction of taking initiatives like the podcast to really give people that kind of insight to, to start mm-hmm. spreading a kind of message. What is the way what is the most optimal and most effective way to invest invest right now 
taking into consideration sustainability practices and and I, I, I don't I mean before we go into investing I, I I think the Minecraft approach is really interesting because it, it is about like bringing the local communities and I started to picture this whole you know maybe monthly thing where the local communities in you know small cities bigger cities villages they just get together either you know either offline or online and they start to have that conversation about restructuring their you know their neighborhood but having some kind of like body of experts present on that for example online minecraft session i think this is a great idea you know i have not really thought about because i i know minecraft but i've not really played minecraft i've always you know considered that to be if I want to do something in 3D, I've got proper tools to do that in 3D. But Minecraft yeah, is a gamified version of it. <laughs> your your skill set is you could build Minecraft. So like that's a bit different than <laughs> most people in the everyday world, right? We can't we can't we have to rely on stuff that's there. Um, so that's kind of funny. But yeah, no, I mean there are there are these kinds of tools, right? Things like Minecraft that they're they're easy. Yeah, the thing right, like it's not. It has to be. They're very easy to learn if you have the hardware, right? Like you need to have on, I guess, software too for Minecraft technically, but you need that kind of the resources. And that's, that's what I meant before, not just mm -hmm. Minecraft, but if you provide the resources to local communities, they have solutions. They just might not have what they need to, to get there. Yeah. What's needed is an interface to translate the ideas to make them visible not only to people outside but actually to people that live there i think that, i think that's brilliant i think i think you know we could do is just to do a very uh, simple test where you know we could gather like local community put a ad on facebook that we are looking to you know do for example redesign this very particular street and we probably like maybe twitter or something similar right there are a lot of communities that use twitter okay to communicate like they might not they might not be on on facebook but again you i mean you have the resources you could actually identify influencers and see what kinds of what kinds of platforms they're using and then work yeah. with them to put out you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna start I'm gonna start with getting Minecraft first and just playing for a second because <laughs> <laughs> just see what's or, going or on. Gonna, or I'm gonna ask my brother. He's you know he's he's a, he's a gamer. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe maybe one of these weekends my my kids could you could you know zoom with my kids and they can yes they can I, explain it. Hello, explain to me Minecraft, please. <laughs> well. So, so, so invest, invest, investors. Um, I think that could be a separate conversation. To be honest, yeah, I think it's a very big one. And if you want, I mean, there are people that I could recommend. I'd love to. Yeah, I'd love. I'd love to follow up with you because I, I like the brainstorming aspect of our conversation. But also, yeah, yeah, just to really grasp the concept. What is? I we talked about the differences between different types of in investment companies and investors like personal like private investors you know they're government yeah. investors like there's so much just to understand like how investment reality looks like but the thing that i want to ask you right now is if you had 30 seconds of undivided 100 percent focus of every human on the planet what would you say to them oh wow only 30 seconds <laughs> that's like and now there's like you know dead air as i sit here being like when does my 30 seconds start <laughs> uh, now. <laughs> oh no um i think one one of the key aspects is everybody can contribute and if we all contribute something whether it's within our own households whether it's within the broader community our countries, our globe, system level, small level. It 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 it's unimportant right now. What it we really need is for everybody to be active towards some kind of positive change for the people and the planet. Okay. Was that <laughs> seconds? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna be I'm gonna listen to it one more time, trying to grasp the concept. 
But uh, one last question I have for you for this particular episode is how mm. people can connect with you if they are interested in having a conversation with you or something you said sparked their interest in you or your work. How, yeah. how people can reach to you? I think right now the easiest way is through LinkedIn okay. because it's something that I check every day and it's a fairly public space. Um, the startup that you mentioned at the beginning, Impact Vest, it's it's very beginning, right? So I don't really have um, a kind of contact through the company yet. Um, yeah, it's probably through LinkedIn. If you do Susan Jackson Sustainability Germany, I'm you know probably one of the only people. I'm gonna link. Will... I'm gonna link to your LinkedIn profile <laughs> in all those yeah. like different places. Uh, that's great. Let's let's finish this one. It's been an hour right now. Incredible conversation. I I I I'm really uh, I'm really grateful for your time, for your ideas and your thoughts. And I really hope we can schedule another one like this, where we can focus, for example, on investors. I'm gonna know a little bit more about Minecraft. Uh, but yeah, well, <laughs> thank you for your time. Yeah, thank you. It's been my pleasure. It's been a lot of fun.